Well, it is that Advent time of year where you're starting to hear the Christmas music when you go out and you kind of know that uh, we're working towards Christmas. Uh, Maybe as you came in today, if you were here with most of us, our heat was out this morning. And so you were thinking walking in a winter wonderland. As we mentioned earlier, we're going to be in Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43 this morning. If you're new to the valley or just new to Rockfish, what we like to do is work through books of the Bible and unpack what God said to us there. And uh, we're all the way up into Mark chapter 5. And uh, Mark has made his purpose for writing abundantly clear. He's writing to the end of persuading us that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Last week, we saw that Jesus frees the enslaved, that he gives life, that he changes everything. He changes how we value. He changes how we submit, how we love. He changes our priorities and even our purpose in life. And so we've seen through Mark the last few weeks, we've seen him command nature, command demons, command all these things. And this week, we're going to learn that he also has power over disease and even death. And our text is going to feature the cleansing of a nameless woman and the raising of a dead girl. Or you could say it like this, the cleansing of a dirty girl and the raising of a dead girl, if that helps you to remember. And as we unpack this section of Scripture, I want you to notice that Jesus welcomes the needy, hears their stories, and rewards their faith. Jesus welcomes the needy, hears their stories, and rewards their faith. And that uh, little, I guess, uh, platitude almost is tied to our one big thing this morning, which you'll have in your insert there. That's this. True disciples come to Jesus, confess Jesus, and believe in Jesus, true disciples come to Jesus, confess to Jesus, and believe in Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, let us sit under the teaching of your word this morning as expectant children. Let our knowledge of you grow not just in our minds, but simultaneously in our hearts. Let our awareness of your love for us be deeply experiential, encouraging, and Humbling. Lord, gently correct us by your Holy Spirit's application of your word to our hearts and to our lives. Help us to have ears to hear. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So let's look at verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. So after freeing the demoniac, Jesus and his band of brothers have made their way back across the sea to the western shore. And my bet is this journey wasn't as exciting as the last with the whole storm thing. But once they arrive, we're told that the ruler of the synagogue sees Jesus and falls at his feet and he begs him to heal his daughter. Lots of falling at Jesus' feet going on in chapter 5. Lots of begging, if you remember the story of the demoniac. The fact here that the ruler of the synagogue is Jairus and he's, I'm sorry, his name, I've been saying it Jairus all week and I'm not sure that it's pronounced that way as I'm looking at it now. I'm just going to call him Jairus and if that's wrong, you can correct it later. 
So Jairus is associated with the synagogue and that automatically makes his coming to Jesus quite interesting. After all, the religious establishment doesn't really care for Jesus at this point. If you remember back to chapter 3, verse 6, they're plotting to kill him. Jairus is a man of distinction, respect, and he has some social standing. Yet in spite of his alliance with the religious and at some, and at some expense to his reputation, he's going to throw himself at Jesus' feet. He begs. My daughter is on death's doorstep. She's fading fast. Please touch her. Come and see her that she might live. Imagine that his decision to come to Jesus didn't happen overnight. My bet is that just like the sick woman that we're about to meet, Jairus had exhausted all the other avenues, everything that he had in order to make his daughter well. And this was kind of his last hope. I mean, can you imagine being in his shoes? His little girl is sick. He's tried everything. Nothing has worked. And as his grasp on hope has loosened, he hears a rumor about a man that calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. A man that makes the lame walk. A man that cleanses lepers and heals the sick. Suddenly he feels his grip strengthen. There's yet hope. He looks everywhere, but soon discovers that Jesus has gone to the other side of the lake. His heart sinks. Then as he wanders through the crowd, he turns and his eyes fall upon Jesus, who has returned back across the sea. And he runs, casting off all dignity, propriety, and pride, and he comes to the feet of Jesus. He begs for mercy. I think Jairus provides an example for us here. He comes to Jesus having counted the cost. He no doubt knows that his reputation will be damaged. After all, rulers don't beg. He also probably knows that in all likelihood, once his superiors hear about this incident and his association with Jesus, he's probably going to lose his position as a ruler of the synagogue. He knows the desperate nature of his situation. He's willing to give up any And everything for a chance to save his daughter. His coming to Jesus will give more. In coming to Jesus. He will get more than he bargained for though. Jesus is not only going to save his daughter. But the man himself. Like Jairus we should know. The desperate nature of our own situation. The cost of coming to Jesus. And the reward of coming to Jesus. He knows his need. He knows that apart from a miracle of Jesus, his daughter's sickness will result in her death. Likewise, apart from a miracle of Jesus, we are all infected with the sickness of sin, which will result in eternal death. That is separation from a loving God. Apart from a relationship with Jesus, we are all without hope. The disease of sin runs in your veins. Your very DNA is filled with sin. You can do nothing to cure or eradicate this disease on your own. Sin is a wrongdoing or a transgression against God. So to be sinless is to be perfect. To be sinless is to be holy as God is holy. And so I think it's safe to say that none of us is perfect. 
we're all guilty of sin. We've all probably told a lie. And if you're saying you haven't, you're probably guilty right there. All of us have sin. And the Bible tells us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It says the wages of sin is death. And so to summarize is that everyone who has ever lived has failed to be perfect, has done wrong and is sinful. The wages of sin, what your sin earns is death, physical and spiritual. Apart from Jesus, we are dead in our sins. We, like Jairus' daughter, are on death's doorstep. Death is coming to get you one day, physically. It might be upon you spiritually. Our need is great. We need someone to perfect us, someone to cure us, someone to save us. We need Jesus. We need a remedy. And Christ is the remedy when we place our faith in him and trust him. When we come to him, he's faithful and able to save us. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Jairus knew the desperate nature of his situation. Do you know the desperate nature of your situation? He knew that coming to Jesus also had a cost. That it would likely cost him his reputation, cost him some friends and his position in the synagogue. It wasn't an easy choice to come to Jesus. Coming to Jesus requires faith and repentance. Friends, following Jesus is it's not for the faint of heart. Or for those who want to, to use God like some sort of genie. Following Jesus requires that you love him more than everyone and everything else. It means turning away from sin and towards God. It's not to say you'll never sin. But that you will continually struggle against, battle against sin in your life rather than embracing it. Coming to Jesus means denying yourself, taking up your cross and following him. Coming to him means forsaking sin, putting off the old self and pursuing godliness, putting on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Have you counted the cost? Jairus also knew the reward of faith. He knew the reward of coming to Jesus. He knew the reward would outweigh the cost. The reward of following Jesus always far outweighs the cost. Coming to him brings joy, peace, security, flourishing, and life abundant. The reward of faith is life together with God. The reward of faith is joy unspeakable. The reward of faith is Jesus. Perhaps you've been in Jairus' shoes. You're experiencing difficult circumstances. Life is hard and you're trying to find a way to make all things well. Come to Jesus. He may not fix your life in the way that you expect. Expect. In fact, he almost certainly won't. But he will make all things well. By giving to you your most urgent need. Peace with God. 
Jairus has come to Jesus, confessed his need to Jesus, and believed in Jesus. Jesus welcomes him, hears his story, and moves to reward his faith. But he's interrupted. Verse 25. And there was a woman who had discharge of blood for 12 years who had suffered much under many physicians and spent all she had, but was no better and grew worse. Some of you have had that experience, right? You spend a bunch of money on doctors and you don't get any better, but worse. She'd heard the reports about Jesus, came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I just touch his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed from her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and in trembling and fell down before him. And told him the whole truth. And he said to her daughter. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And be healed of your disease. So we have Jesus here. On his way to make Jairus daughter well. And the great crowd is going with him. They're eager to see a miracle. They're eager to see something awesome happen. But on the way this nameless woman. Interrupts everything. We're told she's been sick for 12 years. Can't figure out what's wrong. Can't figure out how to heal it. And her particular ailment was a discharge of blood, which is important because it highlights the fact that she is ceremonially unclean, meaning she can't go into the temple to worship. Additionally, it means that whatever, whomever she touched would also be made unclean. I think this probably means that she was unlikely to have very many friends. Others have suggested that she probably didn't have a husband either or children. Which would be two additional curses on top of her ailment. Her circumstances are indeed distressing. She, like Jairus, is out of options and at the end of herself. She too had heard rumors of a miracle worker. She too came to Jesus. She knew her need. She knew that apart from a miracle of Jesus, she was doomed to suffer. And she thought to herself, if I can just touch him, I'll be healed. She knew the cost. She knew that if anyone recognized her touching others, that she would face the consequences of making others unclean. She knew she could be exposed and face further humiliation, further alienation. But she also knew the reward would far outweigh the cost. And so she sneaked through the crowd with a cat-like quickness, I imagine, and she covertly touches the edge of Jesus' garment. Her theology here might be kind of weak because she is looking for healing. I don't think she has a full-orbed picture of who Jesus is. Her theology might be weak, but how strong her faith is. Her faith is exceedingly strong. If I can just touch the edge of his garment, I don't even need to talk to him and I'll be healed. And she does reach out. She touches him and she's healed quicker than an instant. Keep in mind now that Jesus is walking to Jairus' home amidst the people that are pressing up against him. He feels this power go out from him. 
heal this nameless woman. In healing the nameless woman, Jesus takes her uncleanliness and her sickness upon himself and imparts to her his purity and health, much in the same way as he did with the leper. Typically, when unclean people touch other people, the people they touch become unclean, but not Jesus. He cleanses the unclean. Indeed, he is the suffering servant spoken of by Isaiah in the 53rd chapter. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and unvalued. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him as stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our transgressions. Crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. Jesus takes her weakness and gives her his power. He heals her. She's gotten what she came for. But Jesus will give her more than she bargained for. He will heal her completely upon her confession and submission. He's not only going to heal her physically, but spiritually. He's not content to just dispatch a miracle. He wants to encounter a person. See, in the kingdom of God, a miracle always leads to a meeting. Discipleship is not simply getting our needs met. It's being in the presence of Jesus, being known by him and following him. And so in the middle of this emergency rescue route, if you will, to the home of Jairus, Jesus stops. He stops and turns around and says, Hey, who touched me? Who touched my robes? Imagine the disciples standing around there. They're like, uh, Jesus, a whole bunch of people around you. In the middle of the crowd, there's paparazzi. Everybody is rubbing up against you. What do you, what do you mean who touched you? How are you going to ask that question? Everybody's touching you. I also think that they're probably thinking, what are you doing wasting time with a silly question like this? Don't you know that this girl is dying? we got to go heal her. We're running out of time. You're going to stop and ask who touched your robes? Everybody's touching your robes. What does it matter? Jesus won't be hurried, though. He will hear the nameless woman's confession. Verse 33. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. The nameless woman is filled with fear and anxiety. She's been exposed. I mean, this is what she feared. Further humiliation. Jesus is calling her out. But she also knows that she's been healed. And it's her fear that drives her to confess what she's done. And in realizing her fear of being humiliated, she will meet Jesus. Her fear will mature, as did the fear of the sailors in Jonah a few weeks ago, into worship. Her fear will mature into a worshipful fear. Her fear will become faith. She falls down before Jesus and confesses the whole truth. She confesses her need for healing. 
Jesus isn't the only one around here, right? There's a whole bunch of people, and she comes before him and falls face down and confesses to him the whole truth. She's confessing her sin not only in front of Jesus, but in front of everyone, including Jesus. I think the church could use a little bit more of this. Confession, it seems, more and more is somewhat of a rare bird for us these days. But it shouldn't be. We should have, as God's people, a culture of confession that admits to our brokenness and our need for Christ. The nameless woman provides us with an example of how we ought come before Jesus. Broken. And how we ought tell others about Jesus. By telling them the whole truth, that he is the rescuer of those that are lost. That he is the one that puts the broken back together. It's the one that makes all things new. She comes before Jesus broken, knowing that only he can make her whole. And she tells everyone that will hear of her brokenness, of her uncleanliness, of her curse, and of her healing. She tells of how simply touching Jesus has healed her. I think this is how we should evangelize, how we should approach others. With humility. Just like the nameless woman, we're all desperately needy for the touch of Christ. And apart from Jesus, are doomed to live life under the curse of our sins. In other words, we need to be willing to confess our sins and our need for the grace of God to God and to one another. Christian, too long have you allowed yourself to put on the mask of self-righteousness. Too long have you put on the front of, I have it all together. What a good person I am. Too long has your witness in the world been to therapeutic moralism rather than to Christ. Too long have we hidden our weaknesses. God says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Paul writes, therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weakness so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weakness, insults, catastrophes, persecutions, and in pressures because of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God has said Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ. Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Stupid to pretend like you have it all together. It's stupid to say, look what a good person I really am. Instead, your witness in the world, in the workplace, in your sphere of influence ought be, I am so broken, but thank God Jesus loves me even though I'm unlovely, even though I'm ugly, even though I have nothing to offer. He rescues me radically. This is the nature of grace. Do you understand this? Do you believe it? Oh, that we would boast in the Lord rather than our own silly good works. Oh, that we would take pleasure in our weakness, 
and let the world see it so that they can encounter the power and the wisdom of God in our lives rather than a testimony to ourselves. His strength is made perfect in weakness. Hold that we would repent of being good people. Repent of being good people and start being and living like Jesus people, like weak people saved by grace through faith. Like unlovely people that have been made beautiful because of the one that loves them. You want to see the kingdom of God grow? You want to see a movement of God? Then start pointing to him instead of to yourself. Confess. Tell the whole truth. Tell the story of how you were sick and cursed and without hope. Until one day you took hold of his robes fell on your face and confessed your desperate need for his grace. Tell the story of how he responded by calling you son, by calling you daughter, by saying to you, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. As Jesus is speaking to this hurt woman, he he always has times for those time for those that are hurting as he's speaking to her and now healed her jairus waits i imagine he's kind of bouncing from one foot to the other kind of like a kid does when they have to use the bathroom a little anxious now they're on jesus is supposed to be on his way to save his daughter to heal her and he's stopped to encounter this woman I imagine he's a little bit anxious, a little bit worried. God, you're, you're not getting it right. My daughter's fading quickly. Don't you know, Jesus? Maybe he's getting a little bit angry. I certainly would be. I mean, if this were an emergency room situation and Jesus were an ER doctor, he would be guilty of medical malpractice. It's as if he has a gunshot victim that has rolled in just a few moments to live and a cancer patient that has been treated and is doing all right and has had an ailment going on. Both ailments are terrible, but the good ER doctor knows how to prioritize. He's going to treat the most pressing thing first. The gunshot victim has priority. I mean, it's also why the person with heart issues goes back before the guy who steps on a nail, right? I mean, if I'm Jairus, I'm anxious and I'm accusing Jesus of miracle malpractice. What are you doing? That was a great pun. You can put it in your back pocket and think about it later. Medical malpractice, miracle malpractice. It's funny. I love puns. But we've all felt like Jairus. And haven't you? We've all asked, God, what are you doing? Don't you know I need this or that to happen? It's time sensitive, God. Don't you know that I'm the priority? Here's the truth, though. For Jairus and for us, God's grace rarely operates according to our schedules. In fact, sometimes God intentionally overthrows our plans, and it seems that he's committing malpractice in our lives. He does this because he wants more for us. Coming to Jesus, you're always going to get more than you bargained for. Jesus wanted more for Jairus too. Verse 35, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, 
your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. The word translated overhearing here is awesome. It's brilliant. Uh, Mark could have used a number of words, but he used this one. And I love it because it has three distinct meanings. One is to overhear something not intended for your ears. So kind of to eavesdrop a little bit, I guess. The second is to pay no attention to or ignore what's being said. The third is to refuse to listen or to discount the truth of something. Right? I don't believe that. The beauty of the word is that all three of these meanings apply to Jesus in this verse. I like to translate it this way. Jesus heard what they said accidentally, but he ignored it. He didn't believe it at all. And he said to Jairus, don't fear, only believe. And can you imagine being in Jairus' shoes? His heart's just been pulverized. His worst fear realized. And Jesus says, don't sweat it. Just believe. Perhaps you've been in Jairus' shoes. Maybe you are today. Friend, Jesus says these same words to you. Don't fear, only believe. In the short run, things may not work out as miraculous. But in the long run, I assure you, the reward of faith will make these current difficulties feel light. In the long run, Jesus will make everything sad untrue. We can believe in Jesus in spite of circumstance. <clears throat> Jesus tells this sunken father, lift up your head, lift up your heart, trust me. He tells him, I got this. Verse 37. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion. People weeping and wailing loudly. So they get there, and, and people are crying and crying out, and the girl is dead. That might sound weird, but mourners formed a professional guild in the first century. In Judaism, uh, they required these mourners at funerals. And uh, one rabbi said, even the poorest person in Israel should hire at least two flute players and one wailing woman for funerals. So if you were hard on your luck, I guess you could get a job as a professional mourner back in the day. Or if you were especially talented at crying. I tell you this because every commentator I read suggested that it's the arrival of these professional mourners along with the family that's there that accounts for the great commotion that's going on. And it's this frantic scene that Jesus enters into and rolls up and, and he lays this beauty on them in verse 39. He says, why are you making a commotion and weeping? Kid's not dead, but asleep. The kind folks he addresses do as you probably would do. And as the disciples would have liked to have done, I imagine. They laugh at him. Verse 40, and they laughed at him. They're professionals. They've seen dead people. They know what dead looks like. He put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Imagine it with me. Peter, James, and John and the girl's parents are all standing around this young girl. And she is clearly dead. 
kind of picture the disciples feeling a little bit awkward. You know, Peter nudges James a little bit and says, uh, you know, John's not going to be the one that does the nudging. He's the brown noser, the disciple whom Jesus loved. So I've got Peter nudging James here. And he says, "Uh, bro, this girl is not breathing. She looks pretty dead to me. (laughs) What is Jesus thinking? We were were too late. It's a little awkward. How are we going to get out of this situation? You can kind of feel this tension in the air and Jesus, again here, does the unthinkable in his culture. It's a taboo of enormous magnitude. He touches a dead body, right? We saw him touch the unclean woman, and she became clean. We saw him touch the leper, and he became clean. We saw him step onto unclean land when the demoniac came up to him, speak to an unclean person, get him clothed and in his right mind. All those that have been unclean and have come into contact with Jesus have been healed. He touches a dead body, which would make him unclean, but the same thing happens to this dead body as to the others. It's revived. It's made clean. Girl is brought back to life. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years old. They were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Jesus takes the girl's small hand within his own and he speaks tenderly to her as a loving parent. Talitha, kum. Honey, it's time to get up. The young girl stretches her hands above her head with a yawn. She gets to her feet. Jesus tells everyone, I got enough people following me around already. Let's uh, let's keep this in house. All right. Don't need to go telling everybody about it. Also, this girl looks pretty hungry. Let's get her some coffee and some donuts. Everybody's too busy picking their jaws up off the floor to even hear him. They're all overcome with amazement. And you should be too. These two women had impossible physical and spiritual conditions. But those conditions did not stop either of them from experiencing the healing touch of the great physician. Likewise, your sin, no matter how terrible, cannot stop you from experiencing the power of God. Jesus will make you whole, make you healthy. He'll give you peace, security, and joy. We need to only come to Jesus, confess Jesus, and believe in Jesus. Friends, he welcomes us all. He hears us all, and he rewards the faith of all with himself. Jesus' words and actions in this last sentence are both loving and powerful. It takes the child by the hand. It, it sends many of us back to a time when we were children, holding mommy or daddy's hand. You know, when we had a hold of the parent's hand, it just let us know everything was all right. See, Jesus here is the ultimate parent who has you by the hand and who will bring you through the darkest night. It's the Lord of the universe, the one who danced the stars into place. He takes you by the hand and says, honey, it's time to get up. Jesus says to his children, those that have faith in him, if I have you by the hand, Death itself is nothing but sleep. 
Keller writes, there's nothing more frightening for a little child than to lose the hand of a parent in a crowd or in the dark. But that is nothing compared with Jesus' own loss. He lost his father's hand on the cross. He went into the tomb so we can be raised out of it. He lost hold of his father's hand so we could know that once he has us by the hand, he will never, ever forsake us. Jesus let go of the father's hand so that he could take hold of your hand. And say to you, Talitha, whom does he have you by the hand? The dead girl's sleep and rising also remind us of that parable earlier in chapter 4. Of a seed that's scattered and dies or goes to sleep and then rises up. The girl's resurrection is further evidence of the parable's truth. The kingdom of God is broken into human history. The kingdom of God grows and it will triumph. Do not fear, only believe, Jesus says to Jairus. I know all seems lost, but trust me, it is not. Don't fear, only believe, Jesus says to us from the cross. I know all seems lost, but trust me, it is not. The kingdom of God has broken into human history. The kingdom is growing and it will triumph. Jesus welcomes the needy, hears their stories and rewards their faith. Jesus welcomes those that come to him, confess him and believe in him. He welcomes us into his kingdom, into relationship with God. Come to Jesus. Confess to Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Be a true disciple. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, have mercy on us sinners. Lord, we thank you that you didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made yourself nothing, that you became a man and a servant to men and women. We thank you that you served us all by fulfilling all the demands of the law for us and by living a perfect life. We thank you that you exhausted God's judgment against all of our sin on the cross and that you now live and serve as our advocate, as our intercessor, as the bridegroom and as our king. Father, take us by the hand this morning. Help us to remember the truth that you will never let us go. We pray these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.